Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I will be your co-host today. First off, we want to say thank you for your support, and we're both happy to be able to create something that you guys are enjoying. As we previously said, we both really enjoy interacting and reading the feedback that we get um, on iTunes and various other you know media platforms that are out there. Uh, we are Beyond the Breakers podcast on Instagram. And our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And additionally, we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Just want to note that the podcast will always be ad-free and any money from the Patreon just gets put back into the show for uh, web hosting, research materials, things like that. With that stuff out of the way, I want to go ahead and bring in Tanner. And he is actually going to be doing a little bit more in this episode than some of the others. I'll let him take it away from there. Right. Hey, everybody. Thank you for the introduction, Taylor. So yeah, this week uh, we're going somewhere we haven't gone before on the show. You know, we we do a lot in the Great Lakes. We've done a lot of things in the uh, primarily in the English speaking parts of the world. We are going to head over to East Asia today, specifically to the Republic of Korea, to tell a story that is a. Uh, I think this is going to be our most recent story that we've ever covered, right? Yeah, yeah. This is the most recent one. Yeah, so today we are going to be discussing the story of the fairy Sebel. We're going to be attempting and butchering some Korean pronunciations for the whole show, probably. But this uh, this fairy, the Sebel, this was in the news in, was it 2014? So uh, maybe, Yeah, yeah. 2014 so is the year that it sinks. Maybe, maybe some of our listeners out here remember that. The whole time going through this story, I was kind of debating with myself if I, if I actually remembered this being in the news or, or not. Right. Also, I guess I'll just say we, we're kind of structuring this episode a little bit differently than we normally do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to kind of run through the basics of the story and then have more of a, a discussion-based final portion here. The Sewalt was built in 1999 actually by a Japanese company called uh, Hayashikane Shipbuilding and Engineering. 479 feet long, 72 feet wide, with a capacity of 956. So that's 921 passengers plus a crew. When she was built, she had a legal capacity of uh, 180 vehicles and 154 standard cargo containers. She operated under that ownership uh, in Japan until 2012 when the ship was sold to Chunghaejin Marine Company in Korea. This company is owned by the family of Yu Byung-un. This is a name that I mentioned only because it will come up later in the story, being a little bit important. And that's never a good thing on this show. No, it's not. After she was bought by this other uh, company in Korea, uh, the ship was upgraded with extra cabins, so intending to raise the number of passengers. So they, that added about... Uh, a little bit over 100 extra passenger capacity that they could carry, and an extra overall weight capacity of uh, 239 tons. A relatively significant overhaul there, just kind of increasing what she can carry. So once she was purchased by this uh, Chunghaejin Marine Company, she was put on a regular route between the port city of Incheon in northwest part of the Republic of Korea, and Jeju Island off of the southwest coast. So if you if you look at a map of the Korean peninsula, 
Incheon is is relatively close to where the border between North and South Korea is. Jeju Island is off of the southwest coast. It's basically as far south as you can go in the Republic of Korea. Jeju Island is a really popular tourist destination. People go there on vacation, you know, from other countries. And also it's very popular for Koreans themselves to to go on vacation to Jeju yeah. Island. I was reading that it's like a, one of the most popular like, honeymoon destinations mm-hmm. for a lot of like people to get married and everything in Korea. Yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenally popular area. And I should have mentioned this at the beginning, I guess. But yeah, um, so me, me being a, a teacher uh, for, for international students, a lot of my students do come from Korea. Uh, that's one reason this story sort of has more of a personal connection for me. But yeah, all of my students, when we talk about sort of attractions and, and things from their home country, my Korean students always talk about Jeju Island. So this is, yeah, this is, this is a phenomenally popular area to go uh, on vacation. So this, uh, this ferry, the Sewol, she ran three round trips each week from Incheon to Jeju Island and back. So this is a, you know, a relatively short trip, but this is basically up and down the Korean peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was, a, this was a routine trip that she made every week until uh, April 15th and April 16th of 2014. Never good when you give a date. So on April 15th, 2014, Sewol left Incheon at around 9 p.m., she was originally supposed to leave a few hours earlier. I think 5.30 was her original departure time. But that was held up due to fog and low visibility. So they held her in uh, port for a bit. So one thing here, I guess, just to kind of conceptualize this for everybody. Kind of the idea here is that the ship leaves in the evening. You spend the night on the ship as it transits to the island. So you sleep and then you arrive on the island in the morning, rested, ready to go and enjoy your vacation. Mm-hmm. So there are bunks. There's beds. It's not... Not like a ferry that you take like a 30-minute ride through New York or something like that to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, this is intended for, you know, it's, it's kind of like a floating hotel room right. uh, for you. So on April 16th, in the morning, uh, Sewell was about, about two-thirds of the way to the destination of Jeju Island. On this particular trip, the ferry was carrying 443 passengers over 300 of whom were students on a field trip from Danwon High School. So a large percentage of her passengers uh, on this trip are students. Right. In addition to that, she was carrying just over 2,000 tons of cargo. The captain on this particular trip, whose name will come up during our discussion for sure, Lee Jun-suk, uh, was a you know, veteran captain. Uh, he was an older captain. I think he was 68 or 69. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, not not a new sea captain. Uh, this is something he's done before, but he was not the standard everyday captain of the ship. Hmm. Uh, so him and also a, I think a pretty good portion of the crew on this ship were uh, essentially part time employees. This was just this this was not something that they did all of the time. Were you able to find out why he was uh, in command that day, or is it just like he was just filling in for someone who was? I awful? couldn't really track this down. The kind of everyday captain of the ship had lodged complaints mm-hmm. with the company, with Chong Heijin, basically saying this ship is not seaworthy. It's too mm-hmm. old. It needs to be updated. This ship is not safe. I don't know for sure if that's why he wasn't on the vessel. Right. Uh, there was a whole process of him, I believe, basically being basically being threatened with termination, saying if you don't stop talking about this, you're fired. Always the assume- of a company committed to safety. I uh, th- those things could be correlated. I don't know if he was taken off the route or if 
he refused to, to do the route anymore. I couldn't find what that was. That information's probably out there somewhere though. Okay. That's kind of the that's kind of the background. That's the setup to our to our story here. Okay. Well, I'll kind of take a little bit of it now and discuss kind of the the actual sinking of the vessel. So what do we know about uh row row fairies and things like that? What what's the overall theme from our podcast so far? If you've got stuff in the hold, make sure it's secure. And, yeah, I would, and I, I would, and, I, and ide- ideally not on wheels. Ideally not on wheels. So the accident that we're going to talk about is basically caused by, as the Korean reports call it, an unreasonably sudden turn. So because of this, cargo shifts in the hold, and the ship loses stability. There's actually video of this. There's closed circuit video from the. Mm-hmm. Um, we will link to a documentary called In the Absence. We'll link to that. To kind of jump in a bit here, and actually seeing seeing that video, I think, highlights a lot of stuff for me. Because like we've talked, like you said, we've talked about stuff before, where you have stuff moving around in the, in the hold of one of these types of vessels. But seeing it on video, and seeing, you know, these, these are cars going airborne, and, you know, yeah. really, really shifting around, like, being thrown around, you know, they're, they're not necessarily even just rolling, you know, they're, they're tipping over They're Um, it's really crazy to see this happen to, you know, these big heavy vehicles. And it really obviously highlights why you don't want this to happen on your ship. Right. So like in this case, you know, the ship makes a aggressive maneuver. It makes a sudden turn. The cargo shifts, but if you think about it, sometimes vessels make sudden maneuvers. Sometimes, you know, things happen. As you're sailing, just because the vessel makes a sharp turn, cargo shouldn't be shifting. Right. But to get back to the safety aspect that the original captain's talking about, this vessel's carrying 3,600 tons of cargo, and the load limit is only 987 tons. They're triple their limit in cargo. That's so. That's it's beyond. It's beyond crazy to me that you would do this with any ship. First of all. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I mean, with a with a ship that's carrying hundreds of passengers, right? And I mean that brings you back to like the captain. You know they're overloaded, but they're the only people they're putting in danger are the crew members. And every right. crew has the incentive that the more fish they bring back, the more money they make. Yeah, Whereas, sure. It's like yeah, even even yeah, in that situation, sure. Even if probably all the crew did not sign off on that necessarily, it's like everyone in theory benefits from this if it's successful. Whereas this, you've, this is just gross endangerment of mm-hmm. people who probably have no idea that this is, this is the case. Right. So the other issue here is the ballast. They're only carrying 580 tons of ballast. The recommended amount is 2000 tons. So you have this weird kind of thing going on where there's more cargo than there's supposed to be, and there's less ballast, which in kind of you think that maybe those things would balance each other out. However, the problem is the ballast is always going to be in the lowest part of the ship, increasing the stability. Cargo is going to be scattered through multiple decks. It's clear in the videos and the pictures that you see that there's cargo containers sitting on the deck of the ship. The ship is extremely top-heavy, and that's bad. You don't want to have a top-heavy ship. So that goes into those factors of when you make a unreasonably sudden turn, you're going to have problems. And it's like you said, the fact that you would knowingly do this to a vessel that's carrying hundreds of 
is beyond negligence. It's not even the fact of like uh, trying to squeeze a little bit more fish into your hold. You're actively putting people's lives in danger that have no idea what's going on. And it's, it's essentially murder in my yeah. mind. So getting back to kind of the sinking of the vessel and everything, when this turn happens, the first distress call is made at 8.55 a.m. And pretty quickly, there's, there's responses on scene pretty quick. There's a lot of fishing vessels and things that come. But there's a problem. There's not a lot of people in the water. And, and why is that? Do you want me to answer that? Or is that yeah, the yeah. No, no um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So one, one of the things here, one, one of the big factors that contributes to this that's a big part of the discussion after, at least from my understanding of it. Uh, so orders are issued, at least to, to some areas of the ship, basically to, to follow these safety procedures and essentially asking all of the passengers, these students, to basically stay put. Stay where you are. You know, we, we've got things under control. You know, whether it's you know, stay in your cabin, stay in these safe areas, there's no problem. You know, we, we don't need to evacuate the ship yet. Yeah, and I think they even go as far to tell people that moving is dangerous. That, you know, if they move around, they put the ship at, at more risk for, you mm-hmm. know, capsizing or whatever. Okay. They're literally doing the opposite thing of what they should be doing. It's, a, it's evident to almost everyone involved of any sort of authority that this is not a salvageable situation. So actually the captain and the crew are in touch with Korean authorities and with the owner of the owning company of the ship. And the captain's told, like, you have to make a decision. You know, you have to decide to evacuate the ship or to keep everybody where they're at. And the captain basically doesn't make a decision except to keep everybody where they're at, which is the exact opposite of what you would want to do. I guess I have in front of me here an announcement that was actually made. And it's kind of confirming what we just talked about. The announcement that was read over the ship's intercom says, do not move. Just stay where you are. It's dangerous if you move. So just stay where you are. And not to get too cultural or anything in this podcast, but, you know, Korea is a society where most people are fairly deferential to authority. So if the captain of the vessel is telling you to stay in your room as the ship continues to listen and you're a college kid, that's what you're going to do. Or a high school kid, even in this case. And it's tragic that that had to happen, but that, that's kind of what happens here. And, you know, there's a ton of boats on scene, and there's just not that many people to rescue. I guess I'll go ahead and get this part out of the way, too. One person that is almost immediately rescued is the captain. He, uh, he's rescued from the vessel at 9.46 a.m. So in less than an hour from the first distress call, the captain is off of the vessel. I know when we were watching the documentary, I kind of made the point that I'm glad we did the Lady Elgin last week because that captain is the exact opposite of this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he literally is knocking down doors, getting people out of bed and getting them, you know, to safety. And this guy is literally abandoning the vessel with 300 people in their bedroom still. Yeah. It's the exact opposite of any sort of duty that a captain would have. To- yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's not only, it's not only, you know, leaving the vessel and there's still people on there. It's, you know, leaving the vessel after you've issued this order to stay where you are. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, it would be like the captain of the Titanic, like, getting in the first life. But it, yeah. it's absolutely insane that something like that would happen. It's really someone that had no probably ever being a captain of the vessel. If that's just not what you signed up to do. So he's off the vessel, and we'll link to the documentary. But you'll see that this vessel is basically laying at 90 degrees. 
for quite a while. It's pretty incredible video to watch rescuers, you know, tied off to ropes walking along this. Um, there's a lot of helicopter rescues, you know, some in any time you have a capsize, some people are able to crawl to the top of the vessel, you know, and they, they were able to get rescued. Some people don't listen. Some people are up on the top deck smoking, you know, or eating breakfast or something. They jump in the water and they're saved. But most of the people who die in this event are people that listen to the command in the rooms. One thing I think that makes this even more tragic, and, you know, I think one thing we try to do is to always illustrate, even in the older stories, that all of the events happened in color. You know, there's, they're just as tragic back then now. But this, this one happened in the digital age. Yeah. So you've got cell phone video of people on board the vessel. You've got text messages, phone calls. All of this happened and is documented. And it's really chilling yeah. in that documentary to see that. And it, it's especially so because you're dealing with students and it's a situation where, you know, we talk about some of these these vessels that are out on these long fishing trips. You know, people aren't maybe expecting to hear from, you know, their loved ones immediately or within a few days. You know, they, they know that there's this this span of time they're not going to talk to them. This right. is a field trip. This, yeah. is a school, this is a school field trip. You know, this is parents who are probably expecting to hear from their kids. I mean, even when they're on the vessel, I mean, mm-hmm. you're not that far offshore. I'm assuming you're going to have some sort of connection. Yeah. You're probably sending Snapchats or Instagram, you know, pictures. you know, hey, look at this awesome trip I'm on with my friends. So mm-hmm. What 16, 17 year old kid doesn't want to share that with family? Yeah, this is, back home. I mean, this, this, that's, yeah, that's the era of, you know, Twitter. And I, I think was it, was Instagram around in 2014? I don't know. Um, but thing, things like that. This is the kind of thing where you would be, this would be a very social event. You'd be sharing this um, with everyone. Right. Um, One other timestamp here as the ship is sinking. The final confirmed text message from the vessel is sent at 10. So that's the last point where someone's actually communicating and it's confirmed. There was another set, there's a quite a few text messages that after the fact, and those were proven to be false. Um, you know, people looking for attention, that kind of thing. Yeah. Trying to set up a narrative or a story. And honestly, it's, I mean, it's sad that someone would do that for attention. But the text messages that do exist are tragic enough. It's kids trying to talk to their parents. Mm-hmm. It's not great. And I think that's one thing I want to draw from this whole story and we'll get into. This is more than just the ship sinking. There's so much more after the fact that's tragic that didn't have to happen. But because of this sinking, it did happen. And because of the captain's actions, quite frankly, I guess this is more of an episode I want to paint more of a colorful picture of the results of what happens after one of these tragedies. Because the process that we're going to lay out here is no different than what would happen in any of the other stories that we're talking about. The Edmella was just as tragic. The Carl D. Bradley to the 20 or 30 families in that small town in Michigan is just as tragic. And I think this one is going to be a way to show that a little bit more. Yeah. So... One of the things that happens is that the president of Korea is actually blamed for that. Do you, do you have her name? I believe it was Park Geun-hye. I'm not totally and sure she, about that. She um, kind of becomes the lightning rod for a lot of this. Uh, she's informed as the event's happening. And I don't claim to know a lot about Korean politics, but it very much seems that she should have been more involved than she was, or at least the public expected her to be. And yeah. she's, actually, she's actually impeached over this. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's, that's one aspect that any time there's a, I think, a a tragedy, a disaster like this in any country, there's there's a realistic understanding, I think, that everyone has that the president or the prime minister isn't isn't going to swoop in and fix the problem. I think everyone knows that. 
But there's also an expected level of concern and awareness. Mm-hmm. I think more the awareness that you expect these public figures to have. You know, the, the president at the time, Park Geun-hye, she is not, she, she's not going to dive down and rescue students. You know, she, she's not going to fix the problem. But I think the biggest issue, and you, and you see some of this in that documentary, uh, in the absence, is kind of the, kind of the lack of awareness mm-hmm. of the magnitude of what's going on and how this is going to be fixed. At one point in that documentary, she, she asks one of her ministers, you know, like, how, how hard is it to get students in, in Life Fest? And, you know, the minister kind of very quickly responds, well, he's like, well, life, life, vests, life vests don't help if you're trapped in the ship. Like, if you're in your cabin, a life vest doesn't help. Right. Like, it doesn't seem that she fully understands of it, what they're dealing with isn't a matter of plucking people out of water. It's that everyone's probably already dead. You kind of get the sense of a, just kind of a failure to acknowledge that something horrendous has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and the well, only and- thing, the only thing to do now is to deal with the aftermath, because, like, we're past the point where we're probably going to save anyone. Right. And that's something they kind of perpetuate this idea that, Oh, there could be air pockets. You know, we need to have divers there. And she actually visits the the site a day or two afterwards. And they're still pushing this idea to family. Oh, well, we're going to save your kid. And I think that's what really instigates that backlash towards her from the families and from the Korean public as a whole. She's giving people this false hope instead of what we really need is, you know, someone to lead in comfort with the, the tragedy that's happened because by the actions of the captain and the failure of the crew to react, there was never a chance to save these people. Yeah. The initial, I think the initial news report that was put out for like casualties was nine. Yeah, the, in, hear, the initial, the initial report was not nine, nine people dead in this ferry accident. I think that jumped up to like 15. Mm-hmm. And then obviously all of a sudden when, when it becomes basically common knowledge that very few people made it off and this ship has been underwater for, you know, 24 hours, obviously that death toll rises into the hundreds. Mm-hmm. All right. And getting into kind of some of the immediate foreign responses to this, the U S Navy attempts to provide help with a, um, helicopters from an amphibious ship. And they're actually denied by the uh, Korean Navy, you know, clearance to assist in this. And the Japanese Coast Guard also offers their support, and they're also turned away. So kind of the immediate response of the Korean government is like, you know, we've got this. It's not, you know, not something we need help with. And I think that's another thing that just shows that the president's not really showing very good leadership by not getting help from people. And this isn't a time for pride. It isn't a time, you know, to, to turn down assistance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I feel like that seems like it comes from a place of not wanting to admit the magnitude of the problem. Like if I, if I accept foreign aid for this, then it must be a really big deal. So I'll just not accept the aid. And then it's not a big deal. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what it is. Like, I think they thought it would just be a small accident and a few people had died and it would go away. Let's dig into kind of the blowback from this whole incident and why I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it is just how much results from this, how much, not only is there the initial tragedy of, there's a lot of things that happen afterward that are that are really unfortunate. One of those things is the way that the civilian divers that assist are treated in all of this. You know, they're asked to come out there and help retrieve bodies and things like that. And they're basically provided no support. Yeah, with the, the divers and then also some of the initial ships that were on scene, 
at the initial point of the sinking because you know I forget if you mentioned this, but the Coast Guard doesn't show up for quite some time. There's other vessels on scene who are sort of taking part in the rescue before there's any real official government response. So that, in addition to the these you know, civilian volunteer divers who, you know, like they're kind of told this idea about the air pockets, like there could be survivors. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it's it's it seems like that'd be a hard thing to get past a diver who has actually dived on this vessel. Right. And very quickly realizing that this is not a rescue mission. This is a body retrieval mission. Um, yeah. And that they're one, sending of those, beyond. one of those divers actually ends up committing suicide at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can imagine the, the PTSD issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that there were people. like se- serious injuries. Um, yeah. I believe, I believe it may have been that same diver. I think he was seriously injured uh, doing this. All of this from people who this is absolutely not their responsibility. Right. Yeah. They had nothing to do with causing this. And unfortunately, another person who feels a lot of blame for this, is it the assistant principal from the high school or the principal mm-hmm. from the high school yeah. who also ends up committing suicide because they feel responsible that 300 of his students have died. That was a tough read. I think as an educator, that was really, really hard for me to read the story of that, that vice, I think for the vice principal who had kind of organized the trip um, and mm-hmm. then felt really responsible for it. And I was also reading ultimately the, owner of the company that owned the vessel, mm-hmm. he ends up committing suicide in the well, end. He di- yeah, he dies in, like, very strange circumstances. Yeah, there are. I was reading that he's found in a field, like, in a tattered suit and stuff. And he's a billionaire. Like, he's one of the richest men in Korea. It's a very weird story, but it does sound like he probably felt some culpability for this and regret. Yeah, and that was the, the pr- that was the Yu Byung-un that I mentioned at the beginning Kind of a very, like, kind of shadowy character to begin with. Yeah, wasn't he known as, like, the man with no face or something like yeah, that? Yeah, like, it's like, really not, not, like, didn't really have any public image. Like, I, I saw stuff that, yeah, like, saying like, that people didn't even know what this guy looked like. He's sort of like a Howard Hughes character. In yeah. Korea. So, yeah, that just uh, adds another level of, like, strangeness to this story. Yeah, there's not a lot of, for the longest time, there's not to the story for anybody, for the, the families of, you know, the students and the other people on board. There's just a lot of questions. Uh, one thing I did want to make a note of, there's actually three crew members who are credited by survivors for staying on the ferry and helping people escape. I'm not going to attempt their names because I am going to butcher them, but there are three, uh, three crew members. So it is, I mean, worth noting that some people involved in the, you know, the crew of the ship did attempt to do the right thing this people none of them were you know senior leadership or anything you're trying to um, find those those crew members names here yeah it's um i'll go ahead it's it's park g young jung han son and kim ki wong uh were the crew members names and yeah it, it's nice to know that you know when things started going poorly like they still did their job crewmen of a vessel and attempted to help passengers who didn't know what to do this this reminds me of I don't remember which ship it was. I feel like it was one of our Great Lakes ships where there were some survivors, but one of the people credited was the the guy in the engine room who you know continued doing what he could to you know pump water and keep the engines going uh, as long as he could, uh, and that was the last anyone ever saw of him. Oh, uh, that was the um, cat line. Okay, that was the cat line. Yeah, so not one, not one of our Great Lakes ones. No. But yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, that's a that's a common part of these stories where the people who 
are the most committed to to their job, or in this case, to saving people, are, are have pretty low survival odds. Yeah, um, there's definitely an element of like self sacrifice here, where mm-hmm. you know you're doing something so someone else might have a chance. Yeah, especially in contrast when you have a situation like this where the captain's gone. <laughs> he's yeah. He's, I mean, I think it's something that like a like just like a you know a, a seaman or something that's on board a guy who does a job is able to help someone when the captain of the vessel who in theory has dedicated his entire life to being a captain of a vessel literally just abandons the ship when he gets the first chance without trying to save someone. Does that lead us into our, our aftermath and our, our court stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So a few days after this accident happened, the captain, uh, Lee Junsuk, he was arrested charged with several different things, among them negligence of duty, violation of maritime law, and a few other things. Basically, abandoning the ship. As the captain, this was a violation of maritime law. Knowing that there are still hundreds of passengers on the ship, uh, and actually, it's kind of interesting seeing this, because this isn't just one of those things where it's expected of you. In this case, like, there's literally, this is South Korean law, this requires a captain to remain on the ship during a disaster. Mm-hmm. And two other crew members, I think also kind of the bridge crew people, were also arrested uh, for, I think, like criminal negligence and manslaughter. So several members of the crew were arrested and charged. Uh, ultimately, I believe the captain and three of those were charged with murder um, right, yeah. for this. Uh, mur- or homicide through gross negligence. Um, which, and, and this is something that I'll, I'll draw out a bit to highlight. Uh, this is the kind of thing... Even in a country like the United States, where we do have the death penalty, the death penalty in the U.S. is typically reserved for, you know, like intentionally taking the life of someone or numerous people and like specifically in a way that is very over the top. You know, like yeah, I think there generally has to be like extenuating circumstances. Right. And, and, and again, that's that's if you're in a state that has the death penalty. But I Something that is, I think, hard, and, and and this is something that when I, you know, first started learning more about Korean culture, uh, when I started teaching, it there's very different standards uh, in different countries. South Korea is a country that has the death penalty, but it for a little bit wider range of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was entirely something that could have resulted in execution for these for some of these crew members. Uh, you know, this this charge of gross negligence or negligent homicide. This is something they totally could have been executed for. And I believe that was the original sentence for wow. at least for at least the captain. I could be wrong about that, but I think I remember reading that somewhere. Even the fact that it would be on the table. Right. Like, for, right for, in America, that would never be on the table. For us, we would say, you know, it was like it was terrible. Like he wasn't doing his job. He's a monster. But there, there'd be no legal way that we could say he should be executed. Whereas here, mm-hmm. you know, well, he directly contributed to the death of hundreds of people. Yeah, this is an execution offense. Again, I, I think that's what he was originally sentenced with, but that was I think, pretty quickly reduced just to... I've seen conflicting things. Some things say life in prison. Some say 36 years. Yeah, I'm right. wondering if that's one of those things where they like, technically can only sentence for so long and they can review it, or the fact that right. the captain's pretty old in 36 right. years. Right, I mean, re- regardless, it is, regardless, this is effectively a death sentence. And from what I could tell, the captain's still alive. I couldn't really find any updates, um, but I believe he is still in prison for this. Uh, some of the other crew members got 
lowered uh, reduced sentences basically because they were essentially just following their captain's orders. Right. Yeah. So that, that I thought was a, an interesting aspect, especially from a cultural perspective Definitely. of sort of different, the, the way things work in different places. For sure. Kind of the final thing I'll talk about is the salvage operation. They begin salvaging the vessel in March of 2017. And ultimately, the vessel is actually and brought into port. And they're, they're actually, in throughout 2017, doing work to find personal effects, to find belongings, to recover bodies. It's pretty striking in the documentary that we watched. You know, you see them pulling out cell phones from the vessel. It's pretty crazy to think that, you know, there's these cell phones that are caked in mud and stuff, but each one of those belonged to someone who was on that vessel. It means something to the families to get back. Uh, in theory, some of those cell phones may still work if they were in a waterproof case or something. Right. And it's kind of one of those weird artifacts of the digital age that you would even have something like that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting. And I, I can't find any more recent updates, but as of 2017, testing to try to identify some of the bodies and remains that they're finding on board the vessel. Which, I mean, you know, as tragic as it is, it is probably very meaningful to the families to have a little bit of closure. But yeah, I know this episode has definitely been a little different. There's a little bit more discussion and a little bit less of fact, um, like as far as, you know, the technical aspects of what happened. But it's definitely one, I think we've talked about it before, um, sometimes you're just reading through some stories. And I think for you especially, this was one of those, the connection that you have, like you've said before, um, yeah, you know, some of the kids that were on board this vessel are the same age as some of the students that you teach right now. So, yeah, you know, that's a very striking thing when you kind of can have a small personal connection to something, and you know, it's something that's a major cultural you know marker in uh, Korean you know popular culture mm-hmm. today. Even you know, it's you don't want to use that something is a country's nine eleven. It you know, it's a national tragedy in Korea on on that same type of level. For the for uh, the Korean society, yeah, I think this is a this is a good story because it is, in a way, it's kind of a, a typical type story we talk about just from a, a from a technical perspective, but it has those extra elements. You know, it has these political repercussions with the president being basically removed from office because of this. Yeah, for sure. And, it's, uh, it's and again, not to to kind of go back, not not because it happened. You know, she had no control over that, but just kind of the the response, the reaction. Um, and not sort of being up to the responsibilities inherent in that position. And yeah, it's like, this is something that's represented in media. Uh, obviously, we talked about that short documentary, In the Absence. I think that was actually nominated for an Oscar in... Yeah, I actually see that here. Yeah, it was nominated for Best Short Documentary in, ni- or, uh, in the 92nd Academy Awards, which I kind of want to know what it lost to, because that was a pretty... Uh, yeah, it's a very... It's kind of a... It's a tough watch. Um, it's very, it's short. It's like a half an hour. There's also a film called Birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a drama and it deals with the family who's, who's dealing with the loss of, I think it's their son who dies and in the like sinking. A, is that, that's like a fictional account, I'm assuming, kind of like a composite account. Yeah, it has um, Sol Kyunggu. Again, I'm, I don't claim to be good at Korean names, but um, he's, he's a relatively like famous South Korean actor mm-hmm. uh, who's in a bunch of movies. He's the main character in that. So yeah, it's something, obviously this wasn't even that long ago. 
So, of course, it's still very resonant in sort of cultural memory. Yeah, this was a this was kind of a story I really wanted to cover. You know, it is good on the one hand for for our show to break out of kind of our normal wheelhouse. Um, and at the same time, you know, just giving coverage to a story that I really didn't know anything about. And I I still don't know if I even remember it happening. Yeah, I'm kind of the same as you. Like, I'm pretty confident. I remember. Yeah, I mean, I honestly st- couldn't. It's not like the Alfaro where I actually distinctly remember that being a thing. Yeah, stories like this. I mean, obviously, like the world's a big place. There's a lot of stuff happening. But, you know, in Western and American news, basically anything that happens outside of Europe or North America is in the news cycle for maybe 24 hours. Right. And then it's gone. So, yeah, stories like this, they tend to disappear pretty quickly. Right. So it was good. I'm glad we I'm glad we got to talk about this one. Yeah, me too. And I hope uh, everybody still enjoys this one. I know it's a little different. And do it in a little bit of a different style. With all that being said, um, hope everybody has a great week. And we will be, uh, we'll be talking to you guys next week. Thanks for listening, everybody.